Hello, 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 hello. So, uh, yeah, probably address the elephant in the room. Apologies, the uploads a bit late this week, month. Let's go with month. I, uh, I I got that weird winter cold that's going around, and I literally could not uh, talk without sounding like Barry White for basically two weeks. So, uh, yeah, anyone who's waiting a bit of breath for my episode, that's my excuse. I will move on from that. So, tonight... It's an act prohibiting correspondence with Charles Stuart or his party from 1651. So we are very early Cromwell period. Well, kind of Puritan, kind of Cromwell period. Uh, it's 1651 and for some reason you can't talk to Charles Stuart or as he would later be known, Charles II. And uh, let's get into it. So, yeah, where are we? So, 1651, just to kind of get things out of the way. So, the regulation is not in force, but it can be found. I'm going to give you a link. You can have a wee look at it if you want. Obviously, it's not in force. Most things from the uh, Puritan period were quite quickly shelved by Charles II. We covered that last week. Uh, this one specifically not, because effectively it was a law banning communications with Charles II, which obviously Charles II probably would have had a few things to say about Bit of history, very, very brief. The year is 1651. The king, well, now this is a bit of confusing. So the, technically the king is dead. The king was Charles I. He was executed on the 30th of January, 1649. That's 30th of January, 1649. So the heir apparent will be Charles II, and he's currently based in Scotland. And this act was passed by the own parliament. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get into it. So the act describes the following... I don't want to get into it in too much detail as in previous weeks I'm going to read it out at the end. Um, but just, just with a kind of little little bit of introduction. So the Parliament of the Commonwealth of England have thought fit to enact and declare and to hereby enact and declare that no person whatsoever do presume to hold any correspondence with the said Charles Stuart or with his party or with any of them, nor give any intelligence to them or to any of them, nor countenance, encourage, abet, adhere to, or assist them, or any of them, nor to voluntary afford or deliver, or cause be afforded or delivered to any of them, or any of them, any victuals, provisions, arms, ammunition, horses, plate, men, money, or any relief whatsoever under pain of high treason. So I could go into that later. I'm going to go into that later. That's kind of a very nice kind of distinct summary. You really shouldn't be giving any aid to Charles II. Or at this point, they're saying Charles Stuart because to call him the second would acknowledge his kind of uh, his lineage, which they are effectively claiming at this stage has ended with the death of his father. Basically, they run Parliament saying, if you're seen talking to Charles Stuart, i.e. Charles II or his associates, you're committing high treason. And it then goes on to say, if you don't impede them, you're also committing high treason. So effectively, not getting involved was enough. You actually have to physically stop it if that makes sense. Apathy was not enough for the Roman Parliament. So the law was passed on August 1651 and it lasted until the 1st of December 1651. So where are we at this stage? So England in 1651, or rather kind of the UK. So the 1st of January 1651, Charles II is King Crown of Scotland at Scone, or Scone. 20th of July, the English Civil War, the Battle of Iverkeithing, in Scotland, the English Parliament's New Model Army defeats the Scottish Army loyal to Charles II. 
and 25th of August of that year, the English Civil War. At the Battle of Wigan Lane, Royalist troops under James Stanley, the 7th Earl of Derby, are defeated by the New Model Army under Robert Lilburn. And then finally, in the 3rd of well, not finally, <laughs> 3rd of September, Charles II, basically, leading a large Scottish army, is defeated at the last main battle in the war and begins his escape northwards. So basically, Charles II, um, yeah, had, had invaded England and got as far south as Worcester, which is really far south, and I'm pretty sure is the furthest south any kind of, well, arguably a Scottish army has gotten, because it was Robert the Bruce got the Derby, um, and uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie did not get that far south. I'm just, I'm going to make the vast claim, I'm pretty sure Worcester is the furthest south the northern Scottish army has gone. So basically, Charles II kind of flees north. He hides in, like, you know, he hides, he does a few things, and he then basically escapes to France and Europe. And then obviously 20th of October that year, the tender of union parliament issued a declaration that England and Scotland should be incorporated into a single commonwealth. And that kind of begins the, the commonwealth as discussed. So this is all kind of part of the thing that I wasn't, uh, or I wasn't really that knowledgeable on. They call it the Anglo-Scottish War, 1650 to 1652, because there was a few holdouts floating around for quite some time in kind of the, 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 um, the islands, basically, and things. So Charles I was basically King of Scotland and King of England, and Scotland at this point were kind of an independent nation um, that, that effectively fought for that freedom. So the Scots initially fought in support of the Parliamentarians in the First Civil War, but then sent an army in support of the king in the England during the second. The Scottish Parliament, which had not been consulted prior to the execution of Charles I, declared his son Charles II King of Britain, which is a bit of an overreach there. And in 1650, Scotland rapidly raised an army. The English Commonwealth government felt threatened, and the new model army under Oliver Cromwell invaded Scotland. So the Scots initially kind of retreated to Edinburgh, refusing battle, and after kind of a month of manoeuvring, Cromwell unexpectedly led the English out of Dunbar in a night attack and heavily defeated the Scots. So basically survivors abandoned Edinburgh and withdrew the strategic bottleneck of Stirling. Stirling's kind of one of these weird points that always comes up in Scottish history. Was it Robert the Bruce? No, William Wallace, a famous memorial there. Yeah, so the English secured the hold over southern Scotland but were unable to advance past Stirling. And on the 17th of July, the English crossed the Firth of Forth in specially constructed boats and defeated the Scots at the Battle of Everkeething on the 20th of July. And this cut the Scottish army at Stirling off from its resource and supply and reinforcements. This point, Charles II believes he basically has very few options. So he invades England in August. Cromwell then pursued him into England. So the assumption, as in all of these things, is that the Royalists would kind of rally to his cause. This did not happen. <laughs> England then raised a large army. And using this, Cromwell brought the badly outnumbered Scots to battle at Worcester on the 3rd of September and totally defeated them. This was the last war. Well, this was the end of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, basically. And Charles was one of the few to escape. And this demonstrated that the English were willing to defend the Republic and capable of doing so. And this kind of strengthened the position of the English government, as well as that the defeated Scottish government was dissolved and the Kingdom of Scotland was absorbed into the Commonwealth. 
the grand irony, of course, is that Charles II will be crowned king in basically 11 years at this point, 12 years later after being crowned by the Scots, completing the Stuart Restoration. But, you know, history is 2020 in this situation, you know, who, who knew? So, yeah, the conquest of Scotland and Ireland won the Commonwealth respect amongst its neighbours. Kind of by 1652, its legitimacy had been recognised by France, Spain, the Dutch and the Danes, and its navy. Basically, um, Europe kind of is probably willing to... Uh, it's a bit like the French situation with the French um, Republic. Uh, you know, in theory, if you have no- nobles who are willing to kind of spend money, there's a chance that you may have ructions in Europe. But if you're defeating them militarily, there's not really an issue. Um, so basically, this law... Uh, the act prohibiting correspondence with Charles Stuart or his party. Uh, they're passing this law because Scotland is an open rebellion, although Scotland would argue they're not, re- well, they're their own country, so they're, they've been invaded, ironically. <laughs> Scotland could could very simply claim this is a war of Southern aggression. Uh, and obviously Charles II, who they are referring to as Charles Stuart because they do not acknowledge his kingship, has invaded England in like an attempt to escape and basically gets to Worcester before being defeated and then fleeing to France. Um, yeah, it, it really interesting period, really kind of interesting kind of um, kind of like uh, kind of period during the during the well, it's very interesting basically. Uh, war of the Three Kingdoms, English Civil War. War of the Three Kingdoms is such a nicer name for the English Civil War. It kind of gives the kingdoms their due, shall we say? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm just going to kind of talk about a few things in the period and then obviously read out the act in full. So yeah, Benjamin Woodford in his article from Tyrant to Unfit Monarch, and he talks about kind of journalism during the period and, and kind of some of the some of the kind of uh, the more kind of interesting kind of terms and stuff. So basically, there was one figure, one key journalist figure during the uh, kind of Puritan kind of Cromwellian period, and this was. Um, basically Marchmont Nedham uh, and Nedham served as the editor for Politicus through the 1650s and after the printing of new regulations from 1654 Politicus was the only legal newspaper in England so he was basically think of him as the BBC for Cromwellian England it's just that it's a it's a monopoly if you will so Politicus first appeared in 1650 when Cromwell was fighting the Scottish army led by Charles Stuart so Nedham, as in Marchmont Nedham, uh, along with numerous other writers, attacked royalists and Scottish Presbyterians on both political and religious grounds, often arguing that both groups were papists. Yeah, Catholics, basically. In this first major piece of writing for the Commonwealth, the case of the Commonwealth, Nedham warned his readers the miserable inconveniences must needs follow such a success of the royalists in Scotland. If Charles Stuart did manage to retake England, According to Nedham, this would bring a wave of tyranny. This link between Charles Stuart and tyranny was further developed in Politicus. So, obviously, he's he's kind of writing very much along the lines of the Puritans. He's um, he's uh, he's he's defending Cromwell, uh, who obviously has invaded Scotland at this point. It's all about kind of uh, it, it was pitched as a war of liberation, which is somewhat ironic. When Cromwell first crossed the Scottish border. He put his new commission in practice for the freedom of the people of Scotland, intending to be Edinburgh at the coronation of Tarquin for the completing of business. And Nedham was referring to the Tarquins who were ancient kings of Rome. So kind of he was trying to kind of basically say we're overthrowing 
the, the ancient monarchies, and Tarquin as well was, was linked to tyranny, so he was trying to tie Charles Stuart to kind of Roman ancient tyranny. Early news books, well, basically newspapers, but these were books. Early news books were cautious using titles such as the King of Scotland, because you would effectively, uh, I don't want to get into too much detail because I'm going to cover it in a week, uh, but basically like you, the title of king at this point had been abolished by the Puritans. So to call someone the king in your writing would almost be giving them legitimacy there. But hilariously, Tarquin outraged the, the royalists. So, so it's, it's all about the kind of like Tarquin, the, the reference to the kind of corruption of Rome and, and the monarchists of Rome, who, who obviously, it, it's quite a nice analogy. We are now a republic, much like Rome is. We're, we're tying ourselves to Rome somehow. So as well as that, Needham also criticised Charles's royal ceremony. He basically, he, he pointed to it being superstitious. There was anointing and, you know, it was moderated by the Assembly of the Kirk. So, so this was basically laughable to Needham. As the Scots were preparing for the coronation, there was not a word of the crown. Even though they did not have an actual crown, the Scots could still crown Charles um, by rubbing up an old kettle or warming pan. So it was very much, haha, what is this? This isn't even the actual proper ceremony itself. The war changed, obviously, and, and they won. Needham's kind of uh, tack changed. So uh, it went from kind of... Uh, Charles Stuart, at this point, is still an enemy. He's an enemy in Europe. Uh, so it, it effectively, the, the newspaper at the time started mocking his financial situation. So it didn't become Tarquin anymore. But it was kind of, uh, it was, he was basically a figure of ridicule. You know, tyranny wasn't, wasn't really an issue. Interestingly, though, the attacks then moved away from the nature of monarchy, but it focused on Charles's personal weakness. And this shift was caused by a combination of changing political circumstances, as well as that Cromwell's victory at Worcester marked the end of the royalist threat. Prior to the war in Scotland, Needham viewed the Stuart family as a primary danger to liberty in England, hence the description as Charles Stuart's tyrant. After Worcester, Needham knew it was unlikely Charles and the royalists would retake England, but this did not mean that England's liberty was secure. Ironically, Needham saw a new challenge to English liberty, and that was Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> The members of the rump did not believe the republics were inherently superior to other forms of government. And the winter of 1651-52, there were new talks enthroning the Duke of Gloucester, the youngest son of Charles I. When Cromwell was back in London, he began a policy of attempting broadened support for the Commonwealth. This meant downplaying the significance of the regicide in order to bring moderate royalists back into the fold. In 1652, the rump took no notice of the anniversary of the regicide and the Politicus, the paper uh, written by Needham, stopped referring to the regicide in the summer of 1652. So it's very much, a, we're surely we're all working together now that the king is dead. Just don't mention the king is dead or who killed him. So the evolving political situation prompted Needham to continue to adjust his image of Charles Stuart and the Royalists in Politicus. At the inception of the Protectorate, Needham produced tracts that endorsed the new regime. Although Needham had warned against the rise of Cromwell in his editorials, after Worcester, once Cromwell was inaugurated as a Lord Protector, uh, Needham slipped back into his role as official propagandist. In his pamphlet from 1654, The True State and the Case of the Commonwealth, Needham argued the Protectorate was sufficiently popular, ancient liberties of England not only secure but enlarged, and that although executive power be placed in a single person, yet it stands on a fairer account than in former times. In addition to his formal defence of the Protectorate, Needham's descriptions of Charles Stuart and Politicus aided 
in the promotion of Cromwell's regime. Needham in 1653 began criticising Charles as an unfit king rather than a tyrant, because obviously you have to remember it looks like Cromwell at this point is to be Lord Protector, so you can't criticise the idea of a kind of head of state. And Needham had employed a similar strategy in attacking Charles I during the Civil War when his editorials insinuated that Charles I should be held accountable for not behaving in a manner appropriate for the King of England. So Needham is really interesting because he provided two images of royalists in the paper, both were negative but in different ways. At the inception of his, basically his paper, Politicus, Charles was in Scotland rallying troops to the cause, while Oliver Cromwell, still only a general in the army, was preparing to invade Scotland and face the Scottish army. Since Charles was actively building an army for the purpose of defeating the English Commonwealth, he represented the greatest threat to English liberty. The picture continued to develop, and obviously as the years went by, the image of royalists changed. Politicus began to portray Charles as an unfit king rather than a tyrant, and the description attacked the man Charles Stuart, but not the office of king, because it could be argued by some that Cromwell was fulfilling a similar role. So a really interesting article by Nicole Greenspan, and it's Charles II, Exile and the Problem of Allegiance. So I won't labour too much on this. The experiences of the civil wars and regicide give Irish and Scottish subjects leverage to reshape their relations to the king. Irish confederates joined forces with royalists only after concluding a treaty granting religious, political and social concessions to Catholics and the Scottish Kirk, and Parliament refused to admit Charles II to his full authority as the Scottish Parliament until he came to accept the religious, political and constitutional demands. So basically, Irish Confederates were able to kind of um, get concessions and the Scottish Kirk and its parliament you know, got, got, got their demands met. These formal agreements, along with the willingness of Irish and Scottish subjects to withdraw their support when they perceived the king was not following through with his commitments, through the contingent nature of loyalty into sharp relief, as well, Charles II was not only the focus of allegiance for his Irish and Scottish subjects. Religious, ethnic and national interests competed with the king and with each other for primacy. Catholics in Ireland disagreed amongst themselves over the extent of obedience to be given to the king and Presbyterians in Scotland similarly were divided. Recovery of the kingdoms depended upon the support of Irish Catholics and Scottish Presbyterians alike. Yet Presbyterians in Scotland and Ireland balked at the king's allegiance with Catholics and many Irish Catholics suspected Charles II's courting of an eventual treaty with the Presbyterian Scots would cost them the religious and political gains they had won under the peace. This climate of distrust within and across the kingdoms further inhibited obedience to Charles II and prompted many in Ireland and Scotland to define and prioritise their interests at the expense to the kings. To understand the failure of restoration efforts in the 1650s, then we must not look only at the attempts of the king and his agents and the exile courts to recover the throne, but also the willingness and capacity of the subjects to obey. So it's basically saying there were suggestions he was kind of playing all sides to try and get back in. And obviously that meant that people didn't necessarily trust him because now that there was a, a, a kind of secondary loyalty, you know, loyalty to the crown wasn't automatic almost. Mark R. F. Williams in the devotional landscape of the Royalist Exile, 1649 to 1660. He quite just a really, really quick, snappy quote. And basically, the Scottish allegiance was, as Ronald Hunton has observed, one bomb of grudging pragmatism and opportunism. Renewed hopes for a Stuart restoration were purchased at the cost of Charles's recognition of the Scottish Kirk and Parliament. 
on the basis they would support him in um invading uh and kind of helping kind of to well reconquer England if you will or give him at least a launching pad so it's a bit of a short one this week really I, I, don't, I don't want to labor too much on it and I've had a few long episodes in the past but I'm just going to kind of read through this this act and, and kind of go from there So, yeah, August 1651. No person to hold correspondence with Charles Tudor of his party. So, whereas certain English fugitives gathering themselves together in parts of Scotland did heretofore perfidiously and traitorously assist the enemy's invaders of this commonwealth, endeavouring with foreigners and persons of desperate condition to bring a war upon their native country, that's country with like an E in it, um, and an order there at town did set up their head, Charles Stuart, calling him their king, who had formerly been declared a traitor to the Parliament and the people of England, and were, as afterwards, to divert the sad calamities thereby likely to ensure within the bowels of this land. It pleases the Lord that erect the Parliament of this Commonwealth to send an army into Scotland and to afford them his gracious assistance and blessing in so wonderful a manner that a good part of Scotland is become within the power of this Commonwealth, and the said Charles Stuart and his accomplices, the remainder of his party, finding their own weakness and disability to continue longer in that country, are now fled into England. For the prevention, therefore, of the mischiefs which may befall divers of the good people of this nation, in the case the said fugitives be not timely overtaken by the English army, and at the end all persons may be further warned. The Parliament and the Commonwealth of England have thought fit to enact and declare, and do hereby enact and declare, that no person whatsoever do presume to hold any correspondence with the said Charles Stuart, or with his party, or with any of them, nor give any intelligence to them, or any of them, nor countenance, encourage, abet, adhere to, or assist them, or any of them, nor do voluntary afford, or deliver, or cause to be afforded, or deliver to them, or any of them, any victuals, provisions, arms, ammunition, horses, plate, money, men, or any relief whatsoever under pain of high treason. And the Parliament doth hereby command any persons to use their endeavours to hinder and stop the march and passage of the said Charles Stuart and his party, and of every of them, and to resist and oppose them according to such orders and directions as they shall receive from the Parliament, or from the Council of State appointed by the authority of Parliament, or from the general of the forces of this commonwealth, or from such other persons, shall be there at all, authorised by them or any of them, and it is further enacted by the authority aforesaid, that whoever shall offend against this act and declaration, shall or may be proceeded against by a council of war, who are hereby authorised to hear and determine all, and even the said offences, and shall be said by the said council be condemned to suffer death, shall also forfeit all his lands, goods, and other estate, as in the case of high treason, provided that no person shall be proceeded against by any court-martial or council of war for any offences done against this act, unless such person be proceeded against and convicted of such offences within three months after such offence committed, provided this act continue in force until the first day of December, 
51 and no longer, provided also and is hereby declared that any person or persons who shall not be tried by a court-martial or council of war for any other offence committed contrary to this Act shall and may at any time after the said three months be proceeded against for such offence according to the laws of the Commonwealth as this Act had never been made. So bit of a big one this 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 week. Um, some of the laws are going to get bigger, so I'm not entirely sure I'm going to approach that, and it might just be kind of key points read out. But basically, it's 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 kind of straightforward. It's it's as it said. You can't be dealing with them if you're seen to be dealing with them or helping them in any way. You're in trouble. It's going to be uh, if if you're caught within three months, you're basically going to be high treason, and it's going to be basically a military. A council of war and a court martial, so it's 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 going to be kind of uh, expedited justice, shall we say? And this is the kind of Cromwellian Puritan army, so it's not necessarily even going to be a jury of your peers, which obviously will make it significantly more likely that things will not go your way. So yeah, obviously you you have to uh, apathy is not enough. You have to be actively hindering them, stopping them in in whatever way possible. There is kind of a set time, so they're saying, listen, this is right up till the 1st of December, which obviously is when things kind of fell apart for Charles Stewart. And as well as that, it's only within three months. And if you're if if you're seen to be doing things past that point, uh, it's going to go through the uh, the kind of the proper kind of justice. You, you can be proceeded against just, just not as kind of viciously, shall we say, or by court-martial. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting act. You've kind of got uh, the, early, the early English Puritan Republic panicking a little bit and thinking that a bit like Charles II, Charles Stuart thought that, that there might be potential risings. Now they would come later, but that, that's that's for another day. But they did not occur. Uh, England didn't really help. The the Scottish army in effect was defeated and there was no kind of kind of general rising that you would kind of see or expect. So yeah, that, that was it. Nice, nice kind of short one. Charles Stuart. Uh, don't don't be prohibiting if you find yourself somehow back in time in um, 1651 in England uh, try not to kind of engage with this party otherwise you're in trouble my intention was to do a Halloween one but obviously this will come out after Halloween so November will kind of be a few kind of Halloween-y ones I'm thinking probably James I of England because uh, he was a bit of a kook when it came to some laws so yeah that was Policy for the Masses mm-hmm.